Uh, good evening, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I am Rabbi Doug Alpert with uh, Rabbi Congregation Kol Ami. We self-identify as an urban progressive synagogue, uh, bucking a decades-long trend of Jewish movement further and further out into the burbs and kind of move, move back in town. I also co-chair Moore Squared, Metro Organization for Racial and Economic Equity. I'm on the board of Worker Rights Board, Stand Up KC, Fight for 15 and a Union, uh, Missouri Jobs with Justice, uh, Missouri Faith Voices, Missouri Healthcare for All. Uh, a lot of work to be done. <laughs> and um, so when I, whenever I speak in interfaith settings, this is generally how, how I start. So this is the, the broad introduction, which is that um, of all the people in the world, I don't think God chose me to reveal ultimate truth. Um, do I think I'm right? Yeah, sure, on some level I think I'm right, but I, it's really the beginning of good discussion and not a, not a, a position that I would ever maintain with any sort, sort of absolute certainty. But in return, I don't expect anybody else to make that claim either of possessing ultimate truth. So with that, uh, in, in relation to being um, a welcoming, I don't, I'm not fond of the word inclusive. I, th I think it, I want to be something more than that, but I wanted to give a little theological underpinning, at least from a Jewish perspective, and then kind of move forward from there. Um, a couple of things. One is there are, uh, in our written Torah, as we refer to it, the f five books of Moses, uh, there are not 10 commandments, but 613 commandments, of which the most often repeated commandment is the one to not oppress the stranger. Don't oppress the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, which is a way of saying, you know what it feels like. And knowing what it feels like, you should always remember what it feels like. And if you did, you would never wish that on anybody else. Uh, but this commandment actually kind of morphs over time in, in Torah into something progressively stronger, I would say. So what starts out as, an, as what we would classify as a negative commandment not to oppress the stranger becomes a positive obligation to love the stranger. And from there, even more so, it gets further definition that you love the stranger because God loves the stranger. And if this is the God you pray to, then you ought to love the stranger in the same way God loves the stranger. And the, how does God love the stranger? God doesn't show favoritism or take bribes, which is to say God is not impressed with, with wealth and, and power as we oftentimes define it. God uh, works for justice for the widow and the orphan and provides food and clothing for all. So now we, we have this positive commandment. We have kind of a basis for it and we kind of know what it looks like. Uh, the other concept theologically that I think is important, it comes right up in the beginning, toward the beginning in the, in the book of Genesis or in Hebrew Breshit, which is that we're all created in the Hebrew, it says, B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. What that dictates for us it can, it can arguably be a little ambiguous, but if you have that mindset that everyone is created in the image of God, it should alter how you treat the other in your lives. Um, that being said, 
you, you, you have to kind of concede that it's harder to see the image of God in some people than other people. <laughs> so the work gets a little tougher at certain points. Um, that said, a, l a little about my little community, uh, Kolami, uh, we, 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 we fancy ourselves as a welcoming community. I think we are. Um, I think it's in our culture. In other words, where other congregations have welcoming committees, uh, be, they, essentially they proxy out the job of being welcoming to a committee rather than being a part of the culture that everybody engages in. So I, I think that's kind of step one in the whole thing is to just have it be a culture of who you are. Um, we say it on our website that that, that includes uh, the LGBTQ community, interfaith couples, uh, what we would describe as any non-traditional family. Um, we don't say this in our website, but we but the, the kind of the message implicit in all that is we're somewhat the synagogue for the disenfranchised. And the tension arises in that when there are people who come in who are disenfranchised, have not been made to feel welcome in other communities, but they don't have a sense of how communities function and don't function well within communities. At the same time, they're the people who are most in need of communities. So how we resolve that tension, I don't have one certain answer. I, have a, I had a congregant who's no longer a congregant who persistently disrupted community. And at a certain point, uh, there were other congregants in addition to me who said, look, there's a, a certain standard of conduct that you've, you, know, you have to kind of maintain to be a part of community. And he took that as an outright banishment and hasn't been back since. Um, but I, I, um, I worried a lot, even before that happened, about how to resolve that tension. Um, we, uh, we struggle even with the word membership, because membership is a word that connotes exclusivity rather than inclusivity. And we continue to struggle with that idea of, of how we, how we proje project ourselves as being as inclusive as possible and still pay the bills, basically. That's, that, that's, that's a piece of the tension as well. Um, and, and in some cases, that, that while I tell people that the parameters of Jewish thought are incredibly broad, they're not without limits. So there, there are certain perspectives that fall outside Jewish parameters. And you know, some people say, well, we all should be welcome. We all should be included. And I say, but you know, it's a synagogue, and I get to be Jewish in a synagogue. So there's, there's kind of that piece as well. The other piece, the second piece, is what happens outside the figurative walls of the synagogue. So we have a community garden at 43rd and Forest. We're in our fourth season in the garden. We, the one requirement I had, there are people who love to garden. I'm not included amongst them, not if you want anything to grow anyway. But the one piece, the one kind of requirement I had was that it had to be east of Troost. 
and indeed we are and it puts my folks in a neighborhood with people they otherwise would have never met and uh, I'm grateful for that opportunity I'm grateful for how the relationship between us and the neighborhood has grown um, I, I was an urban affairs major undergrad so to be be urban uh, is really in my comfort zone um, and the other piece of that it, it puts us in with issues of that are I think of greater concern of greater awareness in the urban core so I listed the organizations I'm involved with and I think our geographic location connects us to those issues in a much stronger way the final piece I guess is do we feel as Jews do we feel welcome in the broader community and I think my response is usually we do um, for the recent rash of anti-Semitism, including not just the shootings at the Jewish Community Center and at Village Shalom, but what I think has been a, a, a rise in what everybody else refers to as the alt-right, I have a, a, a much harsher term for them, um, and a, and which I think is more accurate. But, but there's not... There's not a whole lot that I haven't been able to do because I'm Jewish. So if the worst thing that happens is I don't get to join Mission Hills Country Club, uh, so be it, you know, I, you don't want me on a golf course anyway. Um, and, and that we, you know, to the extent that we find ourselves separated, some of it is over ritual. I keep kosher. Um, I don't keep it as strictly as, as some of the rabbis in town do. And it's, so in other words, I'll walk into these restaurants across the street knowing that they serve non-kosher food and I'll order vegetarian or a piece of fish that is kosher fish, but knowing that it's served on non-kosher plates and cooked on non-kosher non pots and pans. And that's kind of where I, I draw my line. Other Jews draw it a lot more firmly and therefore that naturally separates them from the non-Jewish world. Um, and finally, this is something we talked about earlier, there is a book uh, that was written called Jews and Jazz. Um, I, in a, in a prior lifetime, was director of the city's Jazz Commission, the late 80s into the early 90s. So I, I was asked to introduce the speaker. Um, that this, it's the only time in my life when I can remember when I was uniquely qualified to do anything. Uh, and, and what's important about this book is, is, is why Jews got involved in jazz, and it was simultaneously to be more accepted in the broader society and community and to not feel so much like an outsider, and yet there was something about jazz that connotated an outsider status. There was something a little subversive about it, a little whatever, and Jews liked at the same time, we wanted to be more accepted. We also wanted to be seen more as outsider as well. So with that, I'll conclude my remarks. And Manaj, you want to? Sure. Hello. Assalamu alaikum. That means peace be unto you. Yes, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. See, they all, see, that's something you can learn. You want to try that? So I'll say assalamu alaikum, and you say wa alaikum salam, all right? Wa alaikum salam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. That means peace back to me. So I said peace to you, and then you said it back to me. So we just have peace, <laughs> if it was so easy. Um, so again, my name is Mahna Shabir, and I've lived in the Kansas City area since 1980. 
and I you have my bio, so I'm not going to regurgitate that. But you also have a few handouts in front of you. Um, one is about Islam, kind of front and back, I think, right? And then um, Muslims in the Metro is a, a second document. And um, some of the highlights from that, um, you can read those on your own time, and or maybe they're being passed out. That's you may not have it in your hand right now. You do not have it in your hand right now, but you are about to have it in your hand. Um, but basically, what I'd like to share with you in the few minutes, at, right in the very beginning, and then I'm, I think the best learning comes from questions, uh, is to understand that there's. There's like 1.6 billion Muslims. And so today you're meeting one of the 1.6 billion, okay? So it's not that I represent all, but I'm going to share with you uh, some basics about it. And then as you go through life and you meet Muslims, you're gonna find that we come like in different shapes and sizes, just like you all come from different shapes and sizes, like how you practice faith or not practice faith may be different than how your parents did or how your siblings or even how your children. And so uh, one of the things that I think people forget about Muslims is that Islam has been in America for a very long time. Many of the slaves that came to America were Muslims. Um, I remember reading in one of my son's social studies, I have four boys, um, and as I was reading one of his social studies books in sixth grade and it said that the slaves had no religion. And that's, and I was like, wait a minute. And I had to call the teacher and then call the principal and then call the school district saying, why are we teaching that they had no religion? They had religion. They had tribal religion from where they were from originally and they also were Muslims. If any of you remember the show Roots, remember the, some of you young ones, you don't remember, it came out in the 70s. You should go watch it again though. It was, it was, it was a really good program. Um, Kunta Kinte was a Muslim, and he tried to pass this on to his children, um, and it was very difficult to do that as slaves. But um, Thomas Jefferson had the Quran as part of his um, library, and part of the he used that as a, a resource as he was writing some of our important texts. Um, in the Supreme Court, there's a picture of um, the Quran there as one of the laws. Um, so as one of the great lawmakers along with Moses and other people. And so I think we just kind of forget that it's part of our life and unfortunately incidents that happen in the world have people sometimes learn about Islam in the wrong way. Um, and so it's hard to get a good message out when there's a lot of negative narratives out there. And so um, since 9-11, I used to be a healthcare executive. Um, I was a vice president for strategic planning and business development. So if you've ever been at St. Joseph Health Center in the Medical Mall, I was the planner for that $40 million project. But with the events of what's happening around 9-11 and, and happening to my two older boys at the time, I felt that I needed to speak about Islam so that people like yourselves can have a better understanding. And that's what I've been doing. And so from that, I can tell you some basic information that, you know, we. We believe in one God. We pray five times a day. Ramadan is like right around the corner and we're getting prepared for that because we fast for about 29 consecutive days where we don't eat or drink during the daylight hours. We eat quite well in the morning before sunrise and we eat quite well in the after evening after sunset. And I don't lose weight. I wish I could, but I don't. 
because I reward myself. And each year I said I'm not going to reward myself as much, but I do. And in fact, we're having an iftar. Um, the Crescent Peace Society started right after the Oklahoma bombing because if you remember from that, um, they felt that it was a Muslim who had done the bombing and we found later that it was someone who called himself Christian. And what we know about terrorism, terrorism has no religion. No, there's no religion that preaches to kill one another. We have scripture that says if you kill one, it's like killing all of mankind. If you save one, it's you save all of mankind, similar in the Jewish and the Christian text as well. So um, I'm just going to pause right there and, and pass the mic, but I, I hope I get some really good questions because that's, again, where the learning occurs. And, and this is, I believe, a safe environment, so all questions are good questions. Thank you. That's where we break our fast. <coughs> where you won't lose weight. We have lots of goodies. <laughs> it's a free meal for all you guys if you'd like to come. June 4th, you can go look for it on the Crescent Peace, um, crescentpeace.org uh, website. Thank you. Good evening, and thank you for uh, uh, inviting me to be here. Uh, it's such a beautiful evening in a beautiful space. I'm very happy to be here. My name is Sergio Moreno. Uh, and if you want to get fancy, you could also call me Nakpa um, Tempa Darje, which is my uh, Dharma name. But you don't have to call me that. It's okay. It's, and it's just as hard to spell as it is to say. Um, I am a practicing Buddhist in the Tibetan tradition, or Vajrayana. Uh, and just uh, in the same way that Manas said, Buddhism also comes in all kinds of uh, shapes and sizes and flavors. It's a tradition that has been around for 2,500 years. Um, and so it's, it's a tradition that started with uh, uh, the historical Buddha Shakyamuni Siddhartha Gautama uh, in India, and then from there flourished and um, expanded throughout the world. And so there are many different schools, uh, primarily three schools, uh, which are uh, the Theravada, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana school. Um, uh, and under those, there are many other schools and traditions. I belong to the Rime Buddhist Center, which is a local um, Dharma center here in town. And we are a Tibetan uh, temple, but we are in the Rime tradition, which means that we are non-sectarian and that we welcome and invite uh, all uh, Buddhist traditions. So we have teachers that come from the Zen tradition, from Theravada tradition, from all different schools of Tibetan and non-Tibetan uh, Buddhist um, traditions. So uh, it's a very open and welcoming uh, spiritual community. We, we strive to be one of the most welcoming spiritual communities in Kansas City. And our <coughs> director is Lama Matthew Rice, who is uh, very committed and devoted to interfaith work and social justice. Um, we, uh, at the Remay Center, we have a, a number of programs that serve um, the less fortunate. We have a homeless outreach program that feeds, uh, uh, that provides food and <coughs> other necessities to homeless communities um, in Kansas City. And we also have an annual um, interfaith uh, meditation day on uh, December 31st. I'm very happy to say that Diane was the recipient <laughs> of our annual uh, Bodhisattva Award, both the Diane and um, your partner. Struggle. Yeah, and, and uh, one struggle, Casey. Um, so uh, very committed to interfaith work and interfaith dialogue. Um, Buddhism is uh, uh, perhaps the third largest religion uh, worldwide. And here in the US, um, it arrived with um, uh, Chinese um, rail workers um, uh, in California, in the West Coast. And so that's how it arrived. And then later, around the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a wave 
of Buddhism with, um, with spiritual search and uh, a lot of people, famous people and non-famous people who started traveling to India and finding um, their spiritual home in Eastern traditions, um, both Vedic traditions and Buddhist traditions, and then bringing that back, uh, lots of very well-known teachers uh, Baba Ram Das, um, Lama Surya Das, and so on and so forth. And so um, there is in uh, the United States uh, currently a, a, a surging and a flowering of Buddhism, Western Buddhism, um, that is very interesting to see and is taking on uh, kind of a, a, a life of its own. Uh, and it's very much uh, oriented towards social justice as well as contemplative practice and the cultivation of compassion, loving-kindness, equanimity, and those uh, kinds of virtues and qualities. So I'm very happy to be here. I will leave it at that. And um, uh, just to say that uh, also I, uh, one of the things that I've been focusing a lot lately in terms of diversity, in terms of inclusion, and, those, and in terms of privilege is this idea in this sense uh, of, um, of, of how we make this happen intentionally. And it is with people in positions of privilege uh, having this awareness and understanding that it's going to take giving up a seat at the table in order for inclusion and diversity to truly take place. Uh, diversity and inclusion is not a matter of, of decoration, of adding more color to the, to the fabric, uh, but rather of taking a step back and saying the people that have not had a voice, the people that have been oppressed, they need to have a seat at the table and be heard and have positions of leadership. And so we really try to foster that in our practice at the Rime Center. And, uh, and also throughout uh, Buddhism in the West. So thank you very much. Let me not spill the water. That would not be good. There we go. Good evening, everyone. Hi. How y'all doing? Good. Okay. I'm going to try really hard not to curse. I'm the heathen <laughs> on the panel, right? That's what I would do. I would just break all kinds of rules. Um, so my name is Diane Burkholder. Um, uh, like Sergio mentioned and in the bio, I'm a co-founder of One Struggles to KC. We do movement for black lives work here in town, um, specifically um, police brutality. And we were really honored to receive the award on December 31st. I wish I had, I wish I had the inscription that was on the plaque. It was, it was to the point. We were like, oh my gosh, like this wasn't like fluffy. Like it was, I was like, this is good. This needs to be our new mission statement. Like yeah. it was really good. Actually, I should find it and post it up. Um, it's really beautiful. So we're really honored to like, to talk about the work that we're doing because these are really hard conversations, um, particularly when things get tense and our emotions and our backgrounds. Um, but So that's one piece of the work that I do. Um, here in Kansas City, I also am part of a group called the Kansas City Mixed Roots, which used to be the multiracial family circle. Um, those of you that are from here, it's, that was around since 91, and that is for mixed race family, individuals, trans, transracial adoptees, um, and we're really a space, the folks that grew up in that group are now uh, moderators of that group and have their own children. So if you yourself are in an interracial relationship or transracial adoption or things like that, like you're welcome to join us. Uh, we have play dates, we have discussions. And so really about creating space and making welcoming space for folks that we don't necessarily often have space. Um, you have to create your own community, right? This is this is community. It's been created. But what is it if you don't fit within those communities or you have multiple identities? Um, and then the third piece of my work is I'm a co-moderator of the Kansas City Free Thinkers of Color. We are a space for uh, non-religious folk. That's about as 
broad as it gets, but we also have folk that are kind of religious in the group, that are just kind of open-minded and want to learn. Um, it's specifically for folks of color, though, so folks who um, background ancestry does not come from Europe. And the reason why, specifically why we have our group is there's actually about a dozen secular groups here in town. Uh, most of them are on Meetup, there's Oasis, if you're familiar with that, they meet at the Tony Aguirre Center on the west side, there's about 200 people that go to that. There's all these community groups, some talk about philosophy, some just get together. There's very few folks of color in these groups. Um, and not that people, we're now encourage people to do those things, but we're also like, we have very unique discussions and uh, very unique realities being folks of color um, within the secular community. When folks think about what is an atheist, they think generally it is a white man who loves science, right? And some of that discussion came up uh, during the March uh, for Science that happened a couple, that was actually a national discussion and even here so locally that a lot of folks that were included were not, or weren't included were folk of color, right? And so when we talk about like welcoming, we have to talk about like our many different identities. So when I'm looking at whether I am welcomed in a faith community, that's, that's my experience. I actually was not raised in a church. Um, kind of a stereotype too is that black folks where I've had people, faith folk come, into the, come to me and want to talk to me about doing get out the vote stuff in a black church. And I was like, you obviously have never, you just see me as a black face, right? I, didn't, I wasn't raised in the church here, right? So just kind of the perceptions that people have of folks of color, um, particularly black women. Most of the folk in the black church, 80% are, are black women. Um, but then we talk about the larger conversation of our folks that are non-believers, not religious, spiritual but not religious, the theists, all these uh, deists, um, all these discussions are, are we included in the discussions of interfaith? And so I appreciate Nick including us because oftentimes I go to interfaith discussions and I'm like the only one speaking up for everyone else. And I think a lot of times in these discussions is, will you believe in quote unquote something? So therefore we all have something in common, but it's kind of the idea too that folks that don't believe in a higher power don't believe in just in morals or that no perception that we worship Satan. Well, a lot of atheists, we have, we don't believe in God, we don't believe in Satan, so we can't worship something we don't believe in, right? So all these misperceptions. Um, and so I'll close with kind of that moving forward and talking about welcoming, but doing true interfaith work, we have to talk about the why we are separated in the first place. What are the ways in which genocide, colonialism, capitalism and faith traditions and within secular traditions, right? Like, what are the ways that folks have been oppressed and marginalized within this work? And how do we talk about uh, reconciliation, which is part of Open Table? How do we talk about true reparations? Because like Sergio mentions about giving up a piece to make room for other people. So it's the difference between doing charity work, let me go help you poor unfortunate person, and not letting that person decide what is needed for them and speak for themselves, right? I think that's where we often get stuck in these conversations. We wanna have these feel-good conversations. Okay, we came together, which is good, but the heart is how do we do this work without by holding our own communities accountable? Because that's the hard work. How do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we hold our communities accountable? And not center the experiences of those that are at the top. That's the unlearning that we have to do, and it takes time. And this happens in marginalized communities too. You don't have to have 
to men to be sexist, that sexism and patriarchy plays out in women, homophobia plays out in the queer community, um, white supremacy plays out in folk of color. That's the way oppression works, is you don't need the oppressor there if the folks are fighting, right? And so that's why we're often fighting for these crumbs. So I appreciate the fact that we're here today, and I know a lot of y'all are gonna be like, what do we do next? So I know that'll happen in like the Q&A, but just like as we move forward, I'm really encourage you to think like, what does reparations look like in my life? I did a, well, I went to the White Privilege Conference and this woman, I'll close by saying this, she, um, a white woman, she really talked about the body, I don't know if you've heard of the post-traumatic slave syndrome. Uh, Joy DeGray talked about the way intergenerational trauma has affected black folks in this country. But she, this woman, um, Heather, I can't remember her last name, it's top of my head, talked about post-traumatic slave, uh, post-traumatic master syndrome. The ways in which white supremacy is played out in white folk the ways in which folk get defensive and don't want to deal and how this, and that was a tough, and how we want to stay in our heads and we don't want to talk about our bodies and our hearts and how it affects us. And within that work, at the end she was like, it's about reparations. So in her life, it looks like she pays her property tax. We could talk about education and property taxes all day long, how that's not fair. But what she does is she gives an equal portion of her property tax because she had her way through school. She, um, her dad had, got GI bill money. All these things have been passed around her. She gives the exact same amount of her property taxes to native, uh, uh, native land uh, reclaiming efforts and let folk decide what to do with that, right? Like it doesn't have to look like that, but what ways that our lives have, we benefit, we all have privilege, but what are ways that we can take a step back and make the space for other folk to define what they really need for themselves. So, thank you. Thank you so much for that, everybody. So, um, 